Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. <laughs> we have a very special guest today. And I'm very uh, happy to announce that Aaron Brown, uh, former chief risk officer of AQR, um, and if Wiki is to be believed, he's a former professional poker player, which that was impressive. Mm-hmm. But as I was reading Aaron's bio, because I'll explain how we, we got Aaron as a guest, I learned he was the author of The Poker Face of Wall Street, which is a book I read about but 10 years currently, ago. But currently, don't you want to like give the uh, Yeah, about so I'll tell you it. now. Okay, so, all right. Let's he has a Bachelor of Science in Applied Mathematics from Harvard University. Oh my God, wow. And the article wow. that inspired this episode, ironically enough, is Want to Succeed on Wall Street, Learn Poker, Not Economics, or Bachelor of Science from Harvard University. Now, I'm only joking, but... Uh, just recently, we read this article, Want to Succeed on Wall Street, Learn Poker, Not Economics. And we decided to reach out to Aaron, and he's uh, pleasurable enough to join us on our podcast. <laughs> pleasurable or <laughs> The pleasure is ours or for now. <laughs> we'll, probably had we'll not see. listened to any of our previous podcasts, so naively um, yeah. got on. But we're very, very excited to have you, and thank you for making the time. Yeah, thanks yeah. for joining us, Aaron. <laughs> And uh, I'll ask you the first question because that will sort of lead into your background and like take us there. But as I said, you're a former uh, managing director at AQR, so you've you know obviously worked on the street. You're uh, the author of the Poker Face of Wall Street. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you specifically to be interested in poker? Yeah, well, going back to the beginning, there used to be these things called newspapers. <laughs> and uh, on the front, they had all these headlines and pictures and news stories. In the back, they had all these numbers, you know, stock prices, sports box scores, agricultural prices, whatever. And I always read them from the back to the front. I always thought, boy, those numbers are fascinating. There's patterns, there's information. And the stuff on the front seemed all like nonsense, like, you know, tomorrow everybody was forgot about yesterday and they were giving all <laughs> kinds of opinions, you know, that never mattered. You go back, you know, you go back and look at a newspaper from, 30 years ago and the headline stuff all seems like wrong. What were they even (laughs) thinking about? But those numbers are in databases and people are still going over them, trying to figure out how to bet on sports, how to bet on stocks and and, and so on. So poker kind of came naturally. You know, it was poker, horse racing, all the sports you could find in the paper, you know, baseball box scores, all by numbers. I never, you know, I had never been to a horse race. I'd never been to a poker game, but I figured out the math. I just love that stuff. Then uh, at 14, I was a very shy kid. So this is, a, you know, for some people, this would be nothing. But for me, it was extremely difficult. I walked into the basement of a tavern. In those days in the West, I was raised in Seattle. There was a poker game in the back of every bar or basement of every uh, bar. And I sat down at the table and I walked away with more money than I came in with. And I thought, this is great. Not that I was a better <laughs> poker player than these guys. You get pretty <laughs> addictive, I would think. Yeah. That was easy. I was used to thinking I was smarter than most of the adults around, but they let me walk out with their money. And they were happy. They liked it. It was fine. <laughs> and so this was great. And I spent a lot of the rest of my life, or the next 10 or 20 years, uh, professional poker playing. I also did some blackjack card counting. I did some sports betting. I did some other kinds of uh, gambling activities. And I loved the independence. 
I loved insecurity. I loved the feeling that if I were broke in a strange town and friendless, I could find a poker game and I could get money to eat and find a place to sleep and so on. I didn't trust banks. I didn't trust, you know, job security, reputation. Probably good reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just the independence and, and no boss. Work when you want, mm-hmm. do what you want. And uh, and I kind of drifted into finance because uh, the stakes were bigger. You know, you, you kind of have a limit. In in modern terms, it would probably be like you know three hundred thousand dollars a year. Back in the seventies, it was more like fifty or sixty thousand. But so that's plenty for a single guy who wants to you know have a cheap apartment and drink beer and you know and anything <laughs> else. But you know, you got mothers in laws and. You want a house, you want a mortgage, you know, things like that. And Wall Street's very appealing because you can bet so much more money. Well, um, what, what, I was going to say, uh, not to interrupt, but I, I, I was interested when you said that you were sort of shy as you were growing up. Um, when, so playing poker, required, at least at the time, required you to engage with people at some level. You know, you had to find a game and kind of that there, there's some social aspect to it. Um, I guess today, of course, you could just sit in front of a screen and play poker to your heart's content um, if you wanted. Did you like the social aspect of it or was it uh, just that was the only way that you could that you could play? Well, I'm not, it didn't come naturally to me, right? I'm a shy mm-hmm. person. I'm not like naturally inclined to it. But there were three kinds of advantage. We call ourselves advantage gamblers, right? We gamble, but with the edge in our favor. Uh, the blackjack card counters were the kind like who play poker in front of a screen today. They didn't want to deal with people. They only wanted to deal with cards. Yep. Then you had the sports bettors. The sports bettors are intimately involved with people because you, you don't care whether the you know Eagles or, or the Kansas City Chiefs are, are going to win the game. You care which side is the betting public going to overbet. So you're, you're, you're only thinking about other people. Poker was kind of for those of us in the middle. We were willing to think enough about other people to get invited to games, to not get cheated, not get arrested, to collect our winnings, but not to the level that we were, you know, like a sports better, you know, joining a big company. And by the way, the advantage game, the blackjack card counters, they're still there counting cards. <laughs> that or, and, and they've branched out into other things, but they still haven't learned much about people. The sports betters all went into business. They're running bookmaking operations or other kinds of internet companies today. It's the poker players, those of us in the middle with some social and some math who kind of went into finance or business or other activities. So so I interrupted your story. You were you you were had gone into financial services um uh because it uh sort of made use of your natural skills um but at some point you kind of circled back to poker uh, or or to gambling. So I'm kind of in, interested in that trajectory or how you got uh, interested in thinking about the connection between those two things. You know, I, I didn't circle back. I never gave yeah, up. I was going to say he never left. It. I never he left. He just it. had to make his mother-in-law happy. Yeah. And he joined Wall Street. <laughs> right. I, I know the story. Yeah. It Although became I wasn't a lower and lower percentage of my income. <laughs> One of the things I kind of find interesting is I have made – Within a fairly narrow range, the same amount of poker every year my whole life, uh, you know, since age, well, say since, since age 18 anyway. And, uh, and, and, it, and, and I get a feeling, right? If I haven't made my quota for the year, you know, by September, October, I'll play a ton of poker. 
if I make a bunch of money early, you know, by May I've hit the number. I kind of I don't feel like you can rest anymore. easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the poker earnings are completely separate from any other money I make. the The other money I make sort of goes into a bank account and it's used for the things you spend money on. The poker money is to prove to myself that I don't need anything but my wits to survive. Take away everything I own, I can make a living in poker. Well, well, that itself is kind of telling because I would imagine that, that the fact that you can, if you hit your quota early on, you can sort of put it down at that point is very different from what I think of as a gambling mindset. Um, of course, there are people who are compulsive gamblers who will just keep gambling until they've lost everything because they can't, they can't do anything else. What's your um, loss quota, John? I, well, I always <laughs> lose. I'm terrible. I, I, but, but I know that. I, sometimes we have IEX like poker nights and the, and a few times they've invited me and I've done so terribly. John recognizes just, he's there to donate. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically I'm there as a, uh, you know, for the, for them to lampoon me and make fun of me. And so I just don't do it anymore. But anyway. Um, well, that is that is the key difference between a professional and an amateur gambler. An amateur gambler will quit when he's losing because he's lost too much or he'd run out of money. And if he wins, he'll bet bigger, play more because he's winning. A professional will win, work, keep playing until they've got what they need, you know, whatever their mm-hmm. budget is. And if they above it, they'll take a break. They'll, you know, relax. If they get below it, they'll play more. They'll play all night. They'll drop down in stakes. They'll do whatever they have to do to keep that money. And you have to do that to be a pro, right? Because you're living Mm -hmm. off the money. (laughs) You don't have the choice of, uh, you know, giving it up because you're losing money. Right. But at the same time, you can't make dumb decisions about sort of trying to constantly double down in order to recover the funds that you got. I mean, that's the interesting connection that it seems to me for in, in financial services. Because it's it's one thing to be reasonably smart about uh, and analytical about understanding what the, uh, the, the odds are in taking on any particular position. But then if you're wrong and you end up losing as a result of it, and emotionally, for some reason, you feel like you have to recoup those amounts for whatever reason. I, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, classic examples, Nick Leeson at Bearings and, you know, various other stories during the, of, of people during the years. That there has to be a built-in kind of self-discipline. Well, you're right? right. And I think you only learn that by doing it. I don't think any human being is naturally inclined to be both an aggressive risk taker. You have to be very aggressive when you got the edge but also to guard against those things. Those of us who had made our living on our wits, whether it was poker, gin rummy, backgammon, whatever, who went to Wall Street in the early 80s, all of us had blown up two or three times. <laughs> all of us had overbet, had chase losses, had made all those mistakes, and we knew it and we learned it. Uh, the kids who didn't have that <laughs> background, however smart they were, however much they thought they knew about risk, they had to have a blow up or two, and it's a lot more expensive to do it at a big bank than it is to do it in a poker game. Absolutely. Actually, speaking of the early 80s, in your uh, Bloomberg article, again, Want to Succeed on Wall Street, Learn Poker, Not Economics, you write about, uh, in your words, perhaps the most famous trading experiment ever conducted, which took place in 1983. Uh, can you tell us more about this and the impact it's had on economics and trading? <laughs> Well, the turtle traders, right? So William Dennis is a very successful futures trader, and he gets an argument with his partner. If if you've ever seen the movie Trading Places, that was kind of a fictionalized account of this. 
So he bets his partner. He says, I can make anyone a trader. His partner says, no, no, you know, traders have to have these special skills. They're rare people. So he takes out an ad in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and he selects some people who had, you know, no trading experience, no education, anything like that. Uh, he gives them a short course in trading, and then he gives them money to trade with. And they turned out to be, as a group, spectacularly successful, uh, making millions of dollars. Not, you know, they weren't all successful, but as a group, they were very successful. And this proved to a lot of people that trading is something you can learn. You know, it, it, it's a craft, not some weird art or some special sense intuition um, people have. But as I say in the article, um, it wasn't a controlled experiment, right? There was no transparency. There was no control group. There's none of the things you want to convince academics. But this paper I talked about in the article and, and a lot of other research of this sort is much more careful scientific work uh, leading to pretty similar conclusions that, you know, trading is something people can learn how to do. Yeah, I mean, this this next question sort of lends to that, but it's, it's a long question, so I apologize as I ask it, but uh, it, it will make sense in a second. So it, it, in more recent study from Federal Reserve Bank of New York, in conjunction with USC and University College London, it was found <laughs> that trading success did not depend on any fundamental insight about value. What mattered was strategic sophistication in the sense of taking analysis of other people's behavior to high levels. And I think you said it well, where beginners think about their cards with little experience, they start thinking about the other guy's cards. And poker begins when you think about what the other guy thinks about your cards. Can, can you talk us through this mindset a bit more and how it translates to the inner workings of uh, finance, specifically trading? Hopefully yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> Sorry, sure. it was a long, it made long absolutely one, no sense to me. But no, please go ahead. I thought yeah. that was great though because I, I played very quite well. a bit you, of poker. You read that very well. I'm not very good, that. but I will say when you start to think about what the other player thinks of what's in your hand, you, you start to play better cards. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get an economic number is released, right? Uh, jobs number is higher than expected. So, you know, your beginner says, "Oh, great, that's good news. I'm going to go out and buy stocks." Uh, get a little more experience to say, okay, let me see how the market reacted to that news and let me see if it's an overreaction or an underreaction. But then you think about, okay, these people who are trading, what do they think the public thinks? What do they think other people think? And this is how you start constructing good trade ideas. It's, you know, it's a very simple example, but it is the general principle. You know, you go extra levels. You think beyond not just what's the obvious impact of the news, but uh, what's the impact of the news relative to the effect on stocks, and what are those people, other people trading, what do they think, what are they waiting for? Um, that kind of thinking is what makes a successful trader. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then you you write about, um, you know, I, I've read a lot about like Susquehanna and Jeff Yes, and uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. But like he started on the horse track and then poker and they bring their, they I, I believe they train a lot of their employees through poker. And you would have mentioned in your article, uh, other firms doing so like Jane Street have something called Figgy. I learned this for the first time. Uh, can you shed a bit of light on this? And do you think it's a useful tactic in trading traders? You know, I training traders. I mean, training say, traders. Did yes. I say trading traders? Trading traders. Training traders. Yeah, I'm. I'm on the fence about whether it's useful for training people. What I do know is people who naturally train themselves with it tend to make good traders. 
So you find somebody who went out to play poker, who learned all the lessons from poker, who was good at it, um, went broke a couple of times playing it, and uh, that person is a very good candidate. If you take somebody who's never chosen to play these games and teach them to play, I don't know if that really helps a lot or not, especially if they're not playing for big stakes. So yeah. if they came already sort of predisposed to playing the game, it's sort of, are you saying that it um, sets the stage already to the type of person they are? Or? Yeah, and, and yeah. learn the lessons. I mean, yeah. you know, most people who play poker don't play very well. Many of the players who are good poker players could never make a living at it because they don't have those extra disciplines. You know, they don't think that extra level. They don't, uh, you know, manage risk properly and so on. You get somebody who's knocked around five years living off poker winnings and they've absorbed a lot of useful lessons and they probably are the kind of person who's going to, you know, take a good approach to trading as well. Well, it's interesting. It is an interesting, uh, it seems to me, combination of, uh, of skills and types of intellect that often don't go together in the same person. That is, you know, I would think you need a, a fairly highly developed kind of analytical capacity. Um, you need to be able to kind of like know what the odds are of being able to get, um, uh, you know, certain kinds of hands based on what you've um, been given and all of that. But then also this sort of, I want to say intuitive sense or sense about other people and the psychology of other people and how it is they are likely to react to a given set of circumstances, uh, which which often is a very different kind of intelligence. But those are two of the three. So there's, there's those and what's the, there's what's the third? There's psychology, and there's wanting to bet on yourself. Wanting huh. to bet on your own calculations. There are lots of people who are great at calculations but would never bet a nickel on them. And there are lots of people who love to bet on themselves, but they're idiots. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's pretty rare to find somebody who can make good bets and wants to do it. And betting on yourself, you're not betting on anything else. It's your calculation. It's what you see. It's what you believe. Um, that's that's not very common. Cool. Um I'm not sure if this question makes sense to you, but uh, it's, I, I have it here go on with my it. list. Well, well, I'll bail you out Ready? if it doesn't. Go ahead. Try As it. the years go on, the markets ebb and flow, but the rules of poker do not. <laughs> Does this mean anything to you? And do you think the fundamentals of poker withstand the ever-changing dynamics of the market and how we interact with it? That's kind of a loaded question. Yeah, no, no, I don't. I don't think that you know the poker. You know, people play different poker games. They use different limit structures. You play in casinos or online or in home games. All that changes a lot, but it doesn't matter to the fundamental nature of the game. Uh, similarly, markets. Yeah, you know, people trade futures, derivatives, regulations change. Um, you know, all kinds of things change. But you're fundamentally what you're doing in trading has, has not changed since you know that uh, Stone Age market fair or something where you're, you know, buying and selling horses, the same basics of greed and fear and psychology and calculation, um, risk management, all of those things are identical. Do you think it, um, so like, um, you, you know, you were playing poker in the eighties and I don't want to generalize that it wasn't popular then, but it's definitely much more popular now on TV and with the world series of poker, which obviously has been around for a while. Like some of these guys are like, stars now, like every, not everybody, but a lot of people would know Phil Hellmuth, names like that. Did the fame of it and the fact that it's on TV and you said you were an introvert yourself, would, would you have liked to play in, in, in that sphere? Or were you happy to come up in a world where it was more backroom bars, like back, like you said? 
Yeah. Well, back then, so, so the 1970s, you still have the World Series of Poker, but it's a casino publicity stunt. Okay. Right? It wasn't as big a deal, right? Well, it wasn't. And, and, and yeah. they invited some Texas leather-ass throat gamblers, <laughs> um, and they sat them down at a table, and, you know, they put some dollar bills on it, and people came around to watch. And it was, uh, you know, and Amarillo Slim was one of the uh, early stars, and he'd go on talk shows and things. But real poker players, when we said no, they real poker players don't play tournaments. You know, it's not the goal of poker is not to bankrupt everybody else. The goal of poker is to walk away from the table with more than you came. And you kept it secret. You kept it quiet. Anybody who talked too much about poker was sort of put outside the community. All of the poker books were written by bridge players or John Skarn, who was a you know slate of hand magician. Real poker players didn't write books about the topic. And you kept it secret because people didn't want to play with someone who was a known poker player where they might get the reputation for this. Um, so it was really kind of a secretive inside world. And we, we despised casinos and, and, you know, television poker players and so on. But when it did become popular, the amount of money you could make went way up. And the amount of money you could make without risk went gigantically up. You know, some of these poker celebrities in the early 2000s were signing endorsement contracts for more money than, you know, you could ever make playing poker in a year. So... If I had come into that world, I probably would have passed it by. I probably would have said, "Nah, this is something for, you know, celebrities and, and hucksters and, and, you know, people who've looked at it on television. It is not me. That I probably would have found something else to do. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned bridge because, oddly enough, I'm actually a pretty good bridge player. At this, well, it, I, it made me sound like I'm very old, too, because not many people play bridge anymore. But... Bridge is is something that I enjoy um, playing, but it's a very different game from um, poker, um, obviously. One thing is it's a partnership game, um, which means that it isn't important to really understand how other people in general react to a given um, situation, but you need to understand your partner and you need to be able to communicate effectively with um, with that person. And so that makes it kind of interesting. Um, but so it's interesting. I'm pretty good at bridge, but not at poker. So I think there, there, there's, there's some overlap too, right? I play bridge. And one of, and if you play money bridge, okay, so money bridge and tournament bridge or, or social bridge are, are pretty different. But if you play money bridge, a very important thing is to kind of get a sense for what the other people are trying to do. You know, how can you exploit their weaknesses? You know, most people aren't there to make money. So some of them are out there, they're, they're afraid of getting set, you know, going, you know, not making their bids. Some people are afraid of underbidding. Some people are afraid of, you know, losing a contract that should have been theirs. And figuring that out can be very important. The big trouble with bridge for me is not only is it so easy to cheat, <laughs> but it's almost impossible to draw the line between what's cheating and what isn't, right? If you know how your partner acts in certain situations, that should be, you know, you shouldn't be able to use that information, but it's impossible to avoid it. You know, if, if somebody coughs during play, you know, in poker, that's meat. That's part of what you do. Yeah, okay, that's a tell. He coughed. Uh, what am I going to do about that? In bridge, you're not supposed to notice that kind of stuff. So unless it's played under international tournament conditions, um, which is physically unpleasant to play that way, um, it, it's impossible to know what is cheating and what isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would frequently cheat, and that's how I did pretty well. But um, it was, uh, most social group players cheerfully cheat a reasonable amount. And, and yeah. then we buy yeah, like, anybody. <laughs> you're playing for big money, and it gets a little different. 
Well, I, I, one other interesting thing that just occurred to me, but um, since you're talking about trading and and poker and psychology and the relation between them, what, what do you think about art, artificial intelligence or kind of like as a tool in trading? Is there a is there a point at which do you think artificial intelligence can eventually be engineered um, to make the kinds of judgments that um, make people a good trader um, today? Or is there uh, no good way to kind of um, encapsulate that in some sort of a, a, a program? I think computers have to be much, much better at trading than any human could ever be. But so far, nobody's done it. And, and I have to say, I'm, I'm a, technical, you know, a technophile. I tend to overestimate. Like, I thought we'd have self-driving cars, real, honest-to-goodness self-driving cars, where, you, you know, you get in, you put in your destination, and you go to sleep. I was going to say, we do, but unfortunately, they drive into the ditch uh, pretty regularly. But, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, actually, I, I got a Tesla, and, and, and its self-driving works pretty well for me. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, but I wouldn't go to sleep in the, in the driver's seat, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, I also thought we'd have fully automated trading by now. I thought artificial intelligence would wipe the floor with human traders. Um, and, and I've spent a lot of money and done a lot of time trying to make that happen um, with very limited success. So computers, artificial intelligence, machine learning are really good for um, execution. So if you say, I want to buy a million shares of Apple, don't go out to find the cleverest Apple trader you can, give it to your algorithm and it will do a much better job. But for actually managing portfolios, it just, you know, it, 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 it just doesn't work yet, but it will. I mean, there's just no doubt, uh, you know, computers are just better and, uh, and they will drive our cars and fly our airplanes and manage our economy and do our trading for us. Um, I would have said it should have happened by now, I tell you now, well, maybe in 10 years, who knows, maybe it'll be 50 years, but it will happen. It does sound like a rather dystopian um, vision. It does, <laughs> but, I, but I, I, I yeah, agree. I mean, people we, who are afraid of it, you know, it, 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 it's, you gotta, you gotta believe you have something unique and valuable in yourself and you don't need everything else to be suppressed so that you can be useful. You know, the better other oh, thank you. Get, that's the, the kind of self-affirmation that I'm looking for from Ronan. And Aaron, that's, never a, get that's it. the nicest thing anyone's yeah. ever said to John. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially yeah, on thanks. the podcast. <laughs> All right, back to real questions before yeah. the question of questions, mm-hmm. which hopefully you got a heads up on. Mm-hmm. Um, just just as we as we, we end up here, what, what do you hope your readers take away from re- the research on poker and its crossover with economics? Well, I don't want anybody to believe what I say, you know, it's done. Don't go to school. Wrong <laughs> line. <laughs> Maybe poker isn't the answer. But but what you should take away from is think about what you're good at and you like doing. And then figure out, you know, where you can apply that uh, to make a living or to live your life. And, you know, if you like poker, go for it and uh, see where it leads. If you like bridge, fine. If you like, you know, building houses out of playing cards, you know, whatever it is, if you like it and you're good at it, it will lead you somewhere good. If you spend your time in boring classes that you hate, where you think the material is useless, it is not going to lead you to a good place. (laughs) You know, it may get ahead, you may get awards, you may get to be president or something like that, but you're not going to have a useful, happy life. Bingo. Bingo. So, Last question. <laughs> What's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? You we might have ev- given away the answer earlier. Yeah, we ask every guest this, just so you know. But uh, uh-huh. favorite Wall Street movie and why? And it can't be Trading Places now. 
Uh, we could be. That is a uh, terrible movie in, in sort of its financial uh, lessons. I think I would go with either Margin Call or Boiler Room, uh, both of which are very accurate. Now, Boiler Room isn't really Wall Street. Boiler Room is kind of the fringe of, of people kind of pretending to be Wall Street. Um, margin Call gets a lot of facts wrong, but it communicates an awful, I mean, that's what those characters look like. You know, the Kevin Spacey character, I have worked for guys like that who are exactly <laughs> like that. You know, the Demi Moore character, yes, I have worked with, you know, people who exactly uh, talk and act like that. I've never met anybody exactly like Vin Diesel from Boiler Room, but uh, I've seen some of those Boiler Rooms and it does capture um, what it is. And the key to both is they don't really have any big overarching message about Wall Street or anything else but they give you the look and feel of the place. They give you, you know, what you feel like, what it sounds like, you know, what life is like in those places. And then some of the, the characters that are typical uh, that tend to inhabit those kinds of environments. And I can't say I've had enough contact with both of them that I can. Well, I, I actually, funny, I never uh, announced this on the podcast, but I did my senior year in college interview. I won't name the firm, but they got done in by the SEC like Boiler Room did. And um, I went to this interview, and when I went into the interview, there was about, like, 25 of us in the interview. And this guy came into the room. He didn't look like Vin Diesel, but he acted and just started <laughs> screaming. And he's like, you want to make $500,000 a year? And I'm like, yes, sir, please. That would be great. I'm making six bucks an hour in the cafeteria right now. And uh, the guy left, and then they, they, they sent us on our way. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened here? And uh, I got a call that night and offered a job, but it was for very little money, but the promise of making all this money, but you got to yeah, hit the phone. I, I can see you yeah. doing that, actually. I, can I, see I, you I, chose not, I chose not to take well, the job. Yeah, had, yeah. had I got a parents and somewhere to live in the U.S., I might have done it. Mm. And I might have been arrested by a guy in a windbreaker with FBI <laughs> called <laughs> John <Ramsey. laughs> exactly. With a water pistol, not a real gun. Oh, how, how, many of those people go to jail? Yeah. They, 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 they drift around from firm to firm, and, and some of them make quite a bit of money doing it. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, Aaron, it's, uh, you've been a great guest. We appreciate you joining, and uh, maybe we'll have you on again in the future. Uh, poker, Wall Street, or, or, once, or once AI has taken over trading and yeah. we'll well, find out how well, that's going. It looks like Aaron's building it. Uh, you know? Well, apparently. When you saw that, just right. When you saw that and you need some funding, call us, please. No, no. Do we you, have any? Algo, we'll call my algo and we'll make plans. <laughs> oh, yeah. And no one leaves our podcast with nothing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what we're going to do, Aaron, is we're going to send you your very own pair of IEX boxes and lines socks. <laughs> <laughs> we're not joking, by the way. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not joking. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. But They're they actually socks. are lovely, very comfortable socks. So hopefully you'll enjoy them. Wear them in okay. good health. Yes, absolutely. In your Tesla. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> Over and out, everyone. Thank you. Until next time. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. (laughs) 